Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. Um, As we said last week, we're taking a break from our study through the book of Revelation. We're going to return to that in January, but during this month, we are considering the arrival of Christ, the coming, the advent of Messiah. As we said last week, Advent is about celebration and expectation. It's about the celebration of the first advent and all that the first arrival of Christ accomplished for us, but it's also about a time of waiting expectantly with great anticipation for the return of Christ, the the second advent of Christ, and all that the second advent will accomplish for us. And today, being the second Sunday, we're talking this morning about peace. This morning, the Hammonds family has lit the candle of peace. Last week, we lit the candle of hope. And today, we're talking about our peace with God. We remember from Isaiah's prophecy in last week's reading from Isaiah chapter 9, as we repeated it this morning. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So this child who was to be born would bring us hope, as we talked about last week, but he would also bring us peace. We recall the story from Luke where the heavenly host of angels appeared to the shepherds who were watching over their flocks by night on the hills outside of Bethlehem. And these angels worshipped God and they sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. On earth peace. Think about that. Peace on earth. The Messiah has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, is there peace on earth? In August of this year, the United States completed its evacuation of Afghanistan, bringing to an end the global war on terror, America's longest war. But do any of us really believe that there is peace in the Middle East, lasting peace? What about here at home, from riots to school shootings to an alarming rise in violent crime? Add to that a seemingly endless pandemic and all of the arguments that exist regarding that. And a landscape of political rhetoric that makes civil discourse all but impossible. We find ourselves in a world, surrounded by a world, in which there seems to be very little peace at all. So were the angels wrong when they announced to the shepherds, peace on earth? In what sense did the arrival of this child in Bethlehem mean peace on earth? 
In what sense was he the fulfillment of that prophecy to be the prince of peace? What I hope to convince you of this morning and bring us all to a place of celebration regarding is that with the first advent of Christ, he inaugurated peace. And with his return, he will perfect it. And so again, we look back and we celebrate the first advent of Christ and the inauguration of this peace. And we look forward with great anticipation to the second advent and the perfection of that peace that was inaugurated in his first coming. So let's read the words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, beginning in verse 15. This passage, verse 15 through 21 in particular, is one of the four great Christological passages that we find in the New Testament. The others being found in John 1 and Philippians 2 and Hebrews chapter 1. And these together present to us in great detail an excursus, if you will, on the very nature and work of Christ himself. And so we won't have time to dive into all of the details about the personhood of Christ this morning. But we will focus on one of them. Namely, that based on his nature and his work, Christ has brought us peace. He's brought peace to man. So let's read in Colossians chapter 1. Actually, I'd like to back up to verse 13 and begin reading there, and we'll read through verse 23. Church, this is God's word to us. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him and he is before all things And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for this book. And we thank you for how it unveils for us the mystery of heaven. How a perfect and holy God condescended to put on flesh to redeem sinners like us back to himself reconcile us through the death of his son 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would make this truth alive and real to us in this room. We pray for those who have yet to depend on the hope of this news for everlasting life. But those of us who have, Father, may this truth invade our hearts and minds this Advent season such that our celebration and our proclamation will be all about Jesus. And we ask this so that you would be glorified through us and in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick outline of this passage. The first couple of verses, I backed up to those because those verses 13 and 14 are kind of a preamble to the Christological passage that follows. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul tells us that God saves us. He redeems us through his Son. And at the mention of God's Son, Paul then launches into this grand Christological passage that tells us about both the nature of the Son in verses 15 through 19 and the work of the Son in verse 20. And so the, 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 the nature of His Son, the, the very nature of who Christ is, is found in those verses 15 through 19. And we could spend an entire series going through each of these, but in brief, we learn in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That, that's the Greek word. The Greek word for image is icon. He is the exact representation of the invisible God. We can't see God, but in Christ we do. In Christ, we have the exact representation visibly of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. Not that he was the first to be born. That, that word, prototokos, means that of those who are born, he is number one. This is a ranking. He is preeminent. This whole passage is about the preeminence, the, the supremacy of Jesus. And of all of those who have been born, Jesus ranks number one. He is preeminent. In verse 16, we learn about Jesus' active involvement in the creation story. He says that all things have been created by him and for him. He is both the source of all creation and its very object of purpose. It exists for him. To give him glory. In verse 17, we're told that he's before all things. Again, that he is preeminent. That, that all things hold together because of him. He is not just the creator of the universe. He is the sustainer of the universe. All things in the universe, large and small, sust are sustained by Christ himself. He is the head of the church, the body of Christ He's the leader of the church. He's the chief shepherd. He is the pastor of the church. He's the Lord of his church. And he's the firstborn of the dead. Again, that word firstborn doesn't mean that he's the first one to be resurrected. But of those who are resurrected, he is preeminent. He ranks number one. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells. 
Verse 19 says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's an incredible statement. It means all that it means to be God is in Jesus. Uh, Paul will later tell us in chapter 2, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that it means to be the God of the universe is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Incredible. And so the, the nature of the Son is detailed for us in verses 15 through 19. And, and I will just say this, that the work of the Son is effectual because of the nature of the Son. What he accomplished on the cross is effective for the salvation of his people because of who he is, as outlined there in verses 15 through 19. Verse 20, we're told of the work of the Son, what he has done, and we're going to focus on that this morning. And then verses 21 through 23, we have the impact of that, the, 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 the impact or the effect of his work on us. That we who are alienated, hostile in mind, have been reconciled to him through his son's death. But I want us to focus this morning on verse 20, where he says that through him, that is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself, that is to reconcile to God, all things, and that's not universalism, that is not saying that he's going to reconcile all things and everyone. But it is saying that all things and everyone that are reconciled are reconciled only through his son Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. So reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. A clear reference to his crucifixion. And so by the work of Christ, by the work of the Son, his shedding of blood at Calvary, Jesus inaugurated peace with God. And so this morning, I want us to answer four questions. First of all, what is this peace that Jesus brought at his first advent? What is that peace? Secondly, why do we need it? And if we need it, how do we obtain it? And then how does all that relate to the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ that is yet to come? So first, what is this peace that Jesus was to bring? In what sense was he to be the prince of peace? The Greek word for peace that we find in the New Testament is the Greek word irene. It's a very common word. In fact, this word is found in every single book of the New Testament except one. John's very first epistle, 1 John, doesn't include this word. All the others do. 1 John is still authoritative, but it just doesn't include the word irene. It just shows how incredibly common this word is in the New Testament. It means harmony in relationships. Whether it's relationships between man or relationships between countries or man's relationship with God. Harmony in relationships. It means a sense of rest or tranquility that is a result of that harmony that exists in the relationships it, it, it infers a an end of hostility a cessation of conflict a cessation of war obviously is what peace means 
in the Old Testament, the Hebrew counterpart to the Greek word irene is the common Hebrew word shalom. You're probably familiar with the word shalom. It's similar in Arabic to salem. It, it, it means a, a, a peaceful greeting. But it carries with it this connotation of completeness and wholeness. And the verb form means to, to, to make complete, to make whole. I did a quick word study on this Hebrew word shalom in the scriptures. I found some very interesting things to note. First of all, like irene in the, in the New Testament, it is a very common word. With its noun variants and its verb forms, it's found over 327 times in the Old Testament. It's very common. Secondly, I found that it's often used to describe a kind of offering that was made to the Lord, a peace offering. In fact, in the books Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, in that stretch there, the word peace is used 53 times, and of those 53 times, 48 of them, it's used in conjunction with the word offering, a peace offering. So there's only five times in those three books of the Bible that the word peace is used when it's not found in conjunction with offering. Interesting thing to note. And then thirdly, I found that the root form, uh, the, the root verb form of shalom is the Hebrew word shalem. And that word actually means to repay, to recompense, to, to make restitution, to pay someone back. So there's an assumed slight. What, what, what emerges from this study here of this Hebrew word shalom is that while it does mean wholeness and completeness, that wholeness is not achieved unless payment is made for some slight. So, that, so there's an assumed slight there. There's an assumed or an, a given unwholeness, if you will. I know that's not a word, but... but because I'm an offense, there's a sense that we're not whole in our relationship with God. There, there's an unwholeness. And in order for that slight to be made right, in order, in order for that unwholeness to be made whole, payment or restitution must be made to the one who was offended. Now we see why this word really is the perfect word to describe our relationship with God. Because there is this sense of unwholeness apart from Christ. In our relationship with God, there's a, there's a slight. There's an offense that is there. We have offended God because of our sin and rebellion. And therefore, there is a there's a lack of harmony. There's an absence of peace between us and God. So that answers the next question, which is why do we need it? Why do we need peace with God? And we need it because we don't have it. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not have peace with God. We needed to be reconciled to God because there were hostilities between us and God. And there was an absolute lack of peace there. Paul says in the 21st verse of the passage that we just read that we were 
alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Alienated from whom? Hostile in our mind to whom? Well, to God. Alienated from God and hostile in our minds to God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we were by our very nature children of wrath. Whose wrath? Well, God's wrath. God was angry with us because of our sin and rebellion. And so we had no peace with him. We were enemies of God. And so we needed to be reconciled to him. If someone offends you and remains steadfast, in their offense, then there is no peace between you. And there needs to be reconciliation. And we have offended God. We've offended God in our sin and rebellion against him. And so apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we are enemies of his. And there is Anger and wrath on God's part towards us. And as long as the stain of sin remains on us, his wrath remains on us forever. Unless something has changed and that stain of sin is removed. So we're in, we're in dire need of reconciliation to God. We're in dire need of peace with God. We, we need a cessation of hostilities. We, we need a cessation of wrath. So how does that happen? How do we obtain peace with God? Well, he tells us in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by, there's the operative word. That, that's, that's the word that gives us the how. Making peace by the blood of his cross. So we obtain peace with God by by God making peace with us. See, he takes the initiative. God makes peace with us by the blood of his son's cross. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access to by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so not only is this peace with God intricately linked with our reconciliation to God, but it's also intricately linked with our justification. To be justified, we've said it before, it means to be declared righteous. Or to be declared good enough to stand before a holy God. And Scripture tells us that none of us is good enough to stand before a holy God because in order to be good enough, we have to be perfect. That's That's the barometer of measurement, perfection, an absence of any sin. But Paul tells us in Romans 1 that none is righteous, no, not one, there is none, who does good. And so we do not have righteousness in and of ourselves, neither can we achieve it. And so in order for us to have the righteousness that we must have, 
in order to be justified, in order to be declared good enough to stand before a holy God, we need an alien righteousness. We need a righteousness that's outside of ourselves to be given to us. And that's what Jesus does for us in the cross. Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He never sinned. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He achieved the righteousness that we never could. And then through his death and resurrection, he offers his own righteousness to those who come to him in faith and place their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. So we can be justified. We we are justified. We are declared righteous. We are declared good enough to stand before a holy God by faith hallmark of the protestant reformation and then paul says in chapter 5 verse 1 since we have been justified by faith in other words since we've been declared good enough to stand before a holy god by faith in christ alone we now have peace with god through our lord jesus christ so we obtain peace with god through our justification by faith And just as our justification is by faith alone, so is our peace with God. It is by faith in Christ alone. And just with our justification, we cannot earn this peace with God by being a good person. By by, by trying to do enough good to outweigh our bad. It is a gift of grace. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue as your only hope for this reconciliation between God and man, then that means that you've been given, in effect, a peace treaty. You've been given a peace treaty between you and the God of the universe. And this peace treaty is written by Jesus in his blood. And this peace treaty says that you who once were an enemy, you are now a child of God. You who once were hostile in your mind to God, you are now in his army. And this peace treaty is yours for all of eternity. There is nothing that anyone or anything can do to change that peace treaty. It is irrevocable and it is imperishable. See, at Christmas, we celebrate that God in his divine wisdom and in his sovereign grace He brought a means of peace with himself. He brought a a means of cessation of hostilities between God and man. And that means was his son, Jesus Christ. Born a helpless babe in, in Bethlehem, but led to the cross of Calvary as a spotless lamb for us. As we've said many times before, we rightly see the manger of Bethlehem against the backdrop of the cross of Calvary. So what application might we make to our lives today concerning this good news that God has brought peace with himself through his son, Jesus Christ? Well, first and absolutely foremost, do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ? Do you have that peace? If you don't have that peace, please don't try to earn it. 
because Scripture says that you can't. That's a dead-end streak. The angels who sang Jesus' birth announcement to the shepherds who were watching over their flocks on the hills outside of Bethlehem. The glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So if you want to be a part of those with whom he is pleased so that the peace of God would be on you, then you must understand and recognize that God will never be pleased with you because of anything you do. No amount of church attendance, no number of baptisms, no amount of religious service or good works, he will never be pleased with you because of what you do or don't do. Our God can only be pleased with us if Christ is in us by faith. Because if you come to Christ in saving faith, turning away from sin and self-rule, and turning to Him in saving faith to rescue you and reconcile you to Himself, well, friend, then the stain of your sin is removed. And you're given that alien righteousness. You're no longer trying to offer the filthy rags of your own righteousness to God and say, God, please be pleased with me. Give me peace with you. No, the righteousness of Christ then is clothing your own body of flesh. And then and only then will God be pleased with you. And then and only then will you have peace with God. So if you want peace with God, it is only found through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I beg of you, turn to Christ in faith. Come to Him and believe on Him for eternal life. But if you do have peace with God through Jesus Christ this Advent, I think there are at least four ways that we can apply and implement this truth about peace with God in our lives today. First of all, we ought to be able to celebrate our peace with God through worship. We ought to be able to celebrate that. If you are a follower of Jesus, then celebrate this gift of peace with God. Not just during Advent, but all year long. Celebrate Jesus, the Prince of Peace. This gets to the very heart of what worship is. And friend, worship gets to the very heart of who God created us to be. We were made to be worshipers. God created us to worship Him, to delight in Him as our greatest treasure, as our most supreme delight. That's why He made us. But we disqualified ourselves from accomplishing that purpose for our life through our sin and rebellion. Now we can't do that. We can't in our sin and rebellion with the stain of sin marring our image before God. We cannot worship Him in spirit and truth. But God is jealous for our worship. And so He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to die in our place, 
so that those who place their faith in Him as their only hope for rescue and reconciliation, we might be remade in Christ. And now we who are remade by Christ, by faith in Christ, we are recreated as worshipers. Now we're new people. Now we've got a spirit through which we can worship the God who made us for that very purpose. And so this peace that we have with God enables us Enables us to once again do that for which we were created. So let us worship our Lord, not just with our lips when we sing, but with our lives as we live. Because of the peace treaty that we have with God, written in the blood of our Redeemer. What a gift of grace this peace is. What a gift of grace. Church, let us rejoice at the arrival of the Prince of Peace. Let's worship Him, express our thanks to Him for making peace with us through His death and resurrection. But secondly, I believe that we're also meant to be an ambassador of this peace to the world. This message of peace, which by the way is the gospel, this message of peace by which we have been given peace with God, is a message that we're commanded to take to the ends of the world so that others who are hostile in their mind to God and alienated from God might come to know this peace with God through faith in Christ as well. So how can that happen in your life and mine? How can we, even in this Advent season, be ambassadors of this message of peace with God? Whether we realize it or not, every single person in our life, every single person within our spheres of influence who have not trusted in Christ alone is an enemy of God. It's not my words, it's God's words. They stand on the other side. They stand opposed to God and God stands opposed to them. And this is all because of their sin and rebellion. And there is nothing that they can do to change that. And if they die in that condition, they will spend an eternity in judgment. And you and I who know Christ by faith, we have been given a message, a story, a message of peace with God. How much do we have to hate them to not share that message with them? Let us be, church, ambassadors of this message of peace with God. Certainly this season, but all throughout the year. Let us be heralds of the gospel of peace. Thirdly, I think we ought to be transformed through this peace with God. We cannot have a transforming effect on us. We know that God, after God saves us, he doesn't immediately relocate us to heaven. And that's because of two reasons. Number one, he's got a job for us to do in the world, which is namely to take the gospel to the nations, as we've said. But secondly, because he's got work to do in us. A transforming work, a sanctifying work. He intends to change us. He intends to grow us in Christ. He intends to mature us in the faith. 
so that we look more and more like his son Jesus so that he'll be glorified through us. Our blood-bought peace with God ought to have a sanctifying effect on how we live our lives. It ought to transform our actions and our lives so that we look more like Christ. So how does that happen? Let me just give you some examples from Scripture of how the peace of God can transform our lives. First of all, the peace of God guards our hearts when we're anxious. Paul tells us as as much in Philippians 4, 6 and 7. He says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God that surpasses comprehension shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And our role in that is what? Is to pray. Is to talk with God. Our our, our role is to, to let our requests be made known to God. And then he says, the peace of God that is unexplainable, it surpasses comprehension, it doesn't make sense given the circumstances, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I think part of what that means is that our peace treaty with God keeps us from giving in to those anxious thoughts and leading us down those rabbit trails. It helps to guard our hearts and minds. The peace of God does. Secondly, the peace of God helps us fight against sin. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us the fruits of the Spirit. One of them is peace, love, joy, peace. The fruits of the Spirit are given to us to help us walk by the Spirit in life and, and not give in to the desires of the flesh. And so if we need to mortify the flesh, and we all do, that's what Paul tells us to do in Romans 8. If we need to kill the flesh, this this body of sin, the, the, the mortification of the flesh, if we need to fight against sin, and we all do, then we need to lean into this gospel of peace and remind ourselves of the blood-bought peace that we have with God through Christ. Help us fight against sin. Thirdly, the peace of God helps us to stand strong in the Lord. Um, In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us about the armor of God uh, that helps us to stand strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might so that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy that are being thrown at us. And then he lists the armor of God that helps us to do that. And one of those pieces of armor are the shoes He says in Ephesians 6, verse 15, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace, which is the good news of our peace treaty with God through Christ, written in the blood of Jesus. This gospel of peace has a role in preparing us and readying us to stand firm in the faith and withstand the attacks of the enemy so the more that we preach the gospel to ourselves and the more that we remind ourselves and one another of the blood-bought peace that we have with the lord the more firm we will stand even in the midst of battle to remain faithful and then fourthly the peace of god gives us courage and strength in the face of fear and suffering In John chapter 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples to be without him. He's about to be arrested and crucified and he's about to die and he's going to leave them. 
They've walked with him for three years. He's, they're, they're about to be without Jesus, and he's preparing them to be without him. And he says, I'm going to send the Spirit to you and be your helper. But then he says in verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We've been walking through pretty intense study of the book of Revelation. And granted, at times, it can be pretty scary. Rocks and fire coming down from heaven. Massive earthquakes. Natural disasters. Demon armies attacking people. It is normal and natural to be afraid of those things. But what does Jesus say? Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Why? Because my peace I give unto you. So whether it's the suffering and tribulation that will come one day at the end, or whether it's the suffering and tribulation of the current church age, we can find courage and strength from knowing that we have peace with God. We might not have peace with the world, but we have peace with God. And so whatever suffering and, and tribulation touches us in life, we know that it, it is well with our soul because we have peace with God. As Horatio Spafford wrote in his famous hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, even when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The peace of God, church, prepares us to suffer well. So let the peace of God overwhelm you. Let it be like a river that flows over you and, and attends to your way so that you can say, whatever your lot, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then finally, a fourth application of this truth to our lives about the peace of God that is ours through Christ is that we ought to wait expectantly for that peace to be perfected. Wait expectantly for it to be perfected. In the first advent of Christ, the Messiah arrived as promised to purchase our peace with God through his death on a cross. Our peace has been inaugurated. But because Jesus rose from the dead, and because he lives today, we can know that he will also fulfill his promise to return again. Not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And the peace that we have with God today will then be perfected in all ways not only will our hostility with God be ceased, but our hostilities with sin will be ceased as well. As sin will be done away with forever, vanquished from the earth. There will be no sin in the new heaven and the new earth. Our bodies war with disease and virus in this life will be done away with Creation's battle with natural disasters will come to an end. 
the great enemy of our soul, the dragon, the devil, will be vanquished, will be destroyed forever and thrown into the lake of fire. And we, church, we will reign in peace with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. The God who kept his promise to bring the Prince of Peace the first time will likewise keep his promise to send him again and perfect that peace. So let us wait for that day while we live in this day with eager anticipation and expectation. Let's pray. Our Father, it is so very easy to look around the world and see a lack of peace. We see it on the headlines. We see it in news articles. We see it with our own eyes. Just a lack of peace. And that lack of peace that we see in the world is just a shadow, just a hint of the lack of peace that we have with you because of our sin and rebellion. And so, Father, during Advent, we look back and we celebrate the arrival of the Prince of Peace who inaugurated peace with God through his death and resurrection. Father, on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room, thank you so much for the gift of that child, for the arrival of peace, for that means of a cessation of hostilities between us and you. Thank you that our peace with you is not dependent on ourselves, but is wholly dependent on you. And Father, for those among us who have not yet professed faith in Christ, May they sense and feel in a very real way that the hostilities remain, that there is no peace between them and you. And Father, in the very next breath, remind them of the hope of the gospel, that through faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope and his death and resurrection, that by placing faith in him, they might be rescued and reconciled and you will make peace with them through the blood of your son's cross. But Father, that peace will one day be perfected in all relationships. That peace will one day be perfected even in creation itself. And so, Father, as we live in this world, seeking to live by faith based on that peace with you, may you cause us to look forward to that return of Jesus, your son, so that he will perfect that peace for all of eternity. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious news. Help us now to live in light of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.